Welcome to the Outpost Bible Church podcast. My name is Pastor Alex Rodriguez. The Outpost Bible Church seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ in His kingdom. Our values are to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven, scripturally grounded, prayerfully dependent, and mission-focused. Here, you will be able to find all of our Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermons. God bless. Father God, we come before you this afternoon in the glorious name of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we live busy lives, noisy lives. We get here, and it's so easy for us to perhaps be distracted. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us focus this time on you that you would drown out the noise, the distractions, and incline our hearts heavenward to you. That you would help us as we open your word to open our eyes, that we would see just how beautiful and glorious you are, God, and who you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That as we are together here as a family in Christ, united by faith, that you would unite our hearts to both fear your name and to treasure it. Lord, we live in a world of cheap substitutes. This world tries to sell us cheap substitutes of what love and satisfaction is. But here and now, we ask that you would satisfy us with your real, amazing, incomprehensible love toward us, your steadfast love. And Father, lead us into truth now. We live in a world that calls good evil and evil good. We live in a world of distortion and deception. And so we need truth. We need the anchor of truth that is your word. So lead us to it. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, God, and may you do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. And let us take the heart of a follower of Jesus and conform it to resemble him more and take the heart of perhaps someone who is here this afternoon who does not know you in a saving way and bring them to faith in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing to look through Luke today. And we are going to be looking this afternoon at Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And as you're turning there, let me start by just asking this question. Let's say you go out to dinner this afternoon. Sitting down, your waitress comes up, your server comes up. Perhaps they saw you pray before your meal. They say, hey, I have a question. I saw you praying. Are you a Christian? Say, yeah. And they ask you this question. Who's Jesus? Why did he come? How do you answer that question? Many in today's world would say, well, Jesus was a really good man. He was a really gifted teacher. That's true. He was the perfect man. He was the best teacher. Some in churches today would say, well, Jesus came and he was a a social activist. He was a political revolutionary. After all, didn't he come and making righting wrongs? Didn't he come feeding the hungry, healing the sick, uplifting the oppressed and depressed? That is true. And in one sense, Jesus is a political activist because he came to the world and he declared himself to be the king of kings. So there's truth to that statement. Some are going to say, well, Jesus came and he was this amazing Amazing miracle worker. He did things that people could never imagine. And that's true as well. Jesus did perform many miracles. And all of those points are important. But none of them are the most important thing of what Jesus came to do. And we need to know the most important thing Jesus came to do if we're rightly to understand who he is. Jesus is the promised Messiah. 
He is the one that was promised in Genesis 3 that would crush the head of the serpent. He is the one that comes from the, the seed of Jesse, the son of David, who will have a throne that will never end. He is the spotless lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world. He is the savior. Jesus forgives sins and gives eternal life to those who believe in him because Jesus is God and man. So Jesus came to meet humanity's greatest need. He came to fix humanity's biggest problem. It's a problem that no man, no institution, no government, no nonprofit can ever fix. It's a need that all of the world's resources put together cannot meet. It is a need and a problem that only God can fix by sending his son, who is the second member of the Trinity, to take upon flesh, being fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to resurrect from the dead three days later. So the big idea as we look at this passage is this right here. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. And because Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sin, you must come to him by faith. Let me repeat that one more time. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven, and because Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sin, you must come to him by faith. So with that, let's read our passage this afternoon and then begin to see what God has to say to us in it. John, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And it happened that one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down before him. But not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, knowing their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, and picking up your stretcher, go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And astonishment seized them all, and they began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen Remarkable things today. Our first point is the claim. As we've been seeing throughout Luke's gospel account, Jesus is often teaching. However, he's usually teaching in a synagogue, but this time he's not, he's in a home. Some have speculated that maybe he's back at Peter's house. We don't know. We know he's in a home. We know he's teaching. And we know the house is packed. And as he's there teaching, we're told that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are present. Now, this is the first mention of Pharisees in Luke's gospel account. The word itself, Pharisee, means separated ones. The Pharisees were a group of men that viewed themselves as set apart for the purposes of God. They were the ones who had helped develop the oral tradition within Judaism. They taught 
that the way one would be in a right relationship with God was through obedience to the law. So in a practical sense, and as we've worked through Luke's gospel, we'll see this, they functionally denied justification by faith alone. So that's important because Galatians 2.16 tells us, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, so they're teaching the way you get right with God is obedience, but that's cutting against God's very process. Not that obedience doesn't matter, it's that obedience doesn't justify. But this is what they teach. And throughout the New Testament, the Pharisees are not portrayed very favorably. They're oftentimes presented as very self-righteous and hypocritical. If you were to go to Matthew 23 and look at verses 1 through 36, you would see Jesus address this very thing. He confronts them on their self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And the Pharisees, in all four gospel accounts, are against Jesus. They're in opposition to his claims and his ministry. And then we have the teachers of the law. In verse 21, they seem to be also referenced as scribes. Most of these men, they would have been Pharisees as well. You see that in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, they're, they're connected to the Pharisees. And what these teachers of the law, these scribes would do is they would interpret God's law. They would teach it and that they would serve as the experts in determining if somebody had broken the law and the punishment that should follow. So the Pharisees and the, the, these teachers, these scribes, they're there, they're sitting, they're listening to Jesus speak, which is very understandable. It makes perfect sense they're there. Because, as we've been seeing, reports of Jesus are going viral. More and more people are hearing of his teaching, his miracles. And so, we need to go check it out. They examined John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, when he's proclaiming at the River Jordan, they come. John tells them, who warned you from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? They came to examine him. Are, are you the Messiah? John says he's not. So now they're here to examine Jesus. They're concerned about his rising popularity, the following that he's getting. Is he teaching contrary to the law? Is he some kind of insurrectionist? Who is this man? So they sit there and they're listening. And you can just tell just in verse 17, that something is going to happen, something important. Because verse 17 says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. This was a TV show, that's where that episode ends and it leaves you on to be continued for next week. What's gonna happen? Now when it says the power of the Lord was with him, this didn't surprise us. Luke has been making a point time and time again in these five chapters about the Spirit of God working in and through the Son of God. Chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Spirit resting upon him. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So here we are. Jesus is in this home. He's teaching. And we're told the Spirit is present upon him so that he could perform this wondrous work of healing. And it's important for us to remember that Jesus' ministry, it wasn't, hey, let me dip into my deity and do these miraculous works. Jesus carries out his ministry in perfect submission and in perfect dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's empowered now to do this work. So verse 18 Some devoted and loyal friends are, are presented to us. 
They've heard that Jesus is in town. And presumably, they've heard about the miracles he's done. And they got this, this, this buddy of theirs, he's paralyzed. Perhaps they're all talking. We should go see him. Will you take me to him? If anybody can heal me, it would be him. Look, he's done it before. He's been, he's been doing miraculous things. As a side note, the man isn't paralyzed because of his sin, necessarily. Sometimes, in the biblical times, if somebody had a sickness, blindness, or paralysis, they would believe it was a judgment from God. In John chapter 9, there is the, the account of a man born blind. And it says in John 9, verse 2, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered him, Neither. This man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. So perhaps we have a similar account here. Perhaps this man is paralyzed because in the fullness of time, God was going to show the world here who his son is. So they take their friend, he's on a stretcher, which if you've ever carried someone on a stretcher, it's a workout. It's no easy task. They get there. We don't know how far they've traveled. You can imagine the anticipation building. We're going to get there. We're going to see him hang in there. Maybe the friend in the stretcher is beginning to doubt. But this is a bad idea. He's getting nervous. Everybody's going to see me paralyzed. No, we're going to get there. Jesus can do it. And you get right at the horizon. You see the house, and it's packed. It's so packed that there's no way we can get inside with the stretcher. Maybe the paralyzed friend just gets, oh, man. But remember, these are devoted and loyal friends. So instead of giving up, they get creative, and they say, well, you know what, we're just going to get on the roof. In houses back then, they would have a stairwell on the outside. They would bring them to the roof. But again, carrying a stretcher up some stairwells isn't easy, but they make the journey, they get on the roof, and they start removing these tiles that are on the roof, and they dig a hole so that they can lower their friend down. Now imagine you're inside, like, if I'm preaching, if I'm like Jesus was teaching, that would throw my sermon off. But as we see, Jesus goes with it. They lower him down. It's quite the sight. But I just want to say, we just wrapped up a series on biblical friendship. And what a picture we have here of that friendship, of their love and their devotion to this paralyzed friend. We're going to get you in front of Jesus, even if we have to take the roof off. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So they lower him there, and we're told in, in verse 19 that as they lower him, he is in front of Jesus. Now just imagine you're this paralyzed man. You get lowered down. You've just disturbed this whole thing. You're face to face with the one that you've heard can make you well again. Locked eyes with Jesus. The entire room's looking. What's going to happen here? You look up. Your friends are peering down. All eyes are on you and Christ. And you're just thinking, what is going to happen right now? The tension in the room. Those are some good friends that put him there. Just as a side note, would we have be, are we that devoted to our friends in need? That's not the focus of the passage, the friend's devotion, but it's an important point. Do we say, hey, I'll pray for you and leave it there, or do we tangibly try to meet the need? So there he is, eye to eye, the Lord of glory. You know, all of that effort, all of that devotion, it's really pointless if Jesus can't heal them. And it's really pointless if the friends are doubting. The fact that they went through all of that 
evidences something, and it evidences that they believe that Jesus can heal. And it evidences that the paralytic man could heal, believe Jesus could heal. He didn't stop them. They're full of faith that Jesus could perform some work. And so we see this in verse 21. Jesus, and seeing their faith. Now that's an amazing thing that the Lord can look upon the heart of a man or a woman. And he can look into your heart and know, do you have true saving faith? He's not seeing their faith. Now your actions oftentimes will evidence your faith, but not always. Sometimes you're in a dark season. Sometimes you have, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus can look into the heart of a man, of a woman, of a child, and know if their faith is sincere, if it's genuine. And Jesus, seeing their faith, it says, he knows you really believe I can do this. We should be praying for an ever-increasing faith within our own hearts. So often, if I'm honest, there's times I come before the Lord and it's not that I don't doctrinally know he can do it. Of course, on paper, if I'm talking to somebody, Jesus can do it. But there's a seed of doubt in there. I pray for the Lord to increase my faith and increase your faith. A faith that is willing to rip the ceiling off to get before him because we know he can. And interestingly, this is the first mention of faith in Luke's gospel account. So seeing their faith, what does Jesus say? Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now we, we read that today, and our hearts explode. Yes, he forgives. But you got to remember, this is not why he came here. Wait a minute. I want to use my legs. And you're talking about sins. What's, that's not why I came here. What's going on? This would have been striking. It would have been a, a disturbing development. That wasn't on the radar. What's going on? This is a turning point in Luke's gospel account. Because we've seen Jesus doing these miraculous things, but now we're seeing that Jesus did not come to be a miracle worker. He did not come to be a holy healer. Jesus came to be a sin-forgiving Savior. And with the Pharisees there, and the scribes there, and the crowd there, Jesus says, let me be really clear what my mission is. Now, this man's paralyzed. We tend to think so often about our sin as the things we do. How much sin can a paralyzed man get himself in? Quite a bit because he has a sin nature just like every one of us, and the imaginations of a sinful heart could be legion. The man is physically paralyzed, but he's not spiritually paralyzed in the sense that he can still freely pursue and chase after all the sinful wiles of his heart. Because your sin isn't based on the condition of your body, your sin is based on where your heart is, and he's got a healthy sinful heart. Every person comes into this world with a sin nature. The paralyzed man and the physically healthy man both have the same deadly problem, a sinful heart. We put it this way, you're not a sinner because you sin, you sin because you are a sinner. I often say for people who just maybe dispute this, probably never had kids. You see a little child, take the youngest of children. You say a kid has a pacifier, six months old. So cute. You pull that, pull that pacifier out. It's the devil incarnate. All the anger, sin, and rage that fills the eyes. I'm convinced that kid would kill me if he could at that moment. You don't have to teach selfishness. You don't have to teach greed. You don't have to teach anger. We are, all have a sin nature. And so this paralyzed man is just as sinful as a Roman athlete of his day. So when Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven, 
Jesus is saying, let me tell you about your real problem. Let me tell you why I really came and why you're really here. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or Luke 19.10, which is, in many can say, the summary verse of the entire gospel, kind of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 77 through 79, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. This is who Jesus is, why he came. So let me put this question before all of you this morning, this afternoon. When you woke up, you fumble out of bed and you got your cup of coffee or tea or cereal. What did you view was your biggest need or biggest problem? For me, I was like, man, I, did, did I get everything right in my sermon? Let me hope my iPad doesn't crash. That's my biggest problem this morning I'm thinking about. For some, it could be unpacking a home and getting settled in. For others, they're thinking about, I have a lot of homework due. I have work tomorrow. Your biggest problem, your greatest need is not a change in your finances. It isn't a change of your vocation or station of life. It isn't a change of your health, of your position in society and how you're thought of by friends. Not earthly relationships. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven by a holy God. Your greatest need is to hear Jesus say over you, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that? Or have you come to Christ? Let me put it this way. Did you come to Christ to have your sins forgiven? Or did you come to Christ because you wanted him to grant you some lesser purpose? This paralytic came to Christ to be healed. Bodily. Jesus says, I heal you spiritually right now, he says. That's the claim Jesus makes in verses 17 through 20, that he's forgiven sin. Our second point, verse 21, the objection. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Remember the Pharisees, their scribes, they're sitting there. They're hearing this. They're taking it all in. They're the religious leaders of the day. They were charged with interpreting and enforcing the law of God. And as soon as they hear Jesus say, friend, your sins are forgiven you, an alarm goes off in their head, the blasphemy alarm. And you know what? They have really good doctrine. Their theology is on point. If you go to Portillo's and you're sitting there and some guy is talking and he says, you know what? I forgive you of all your sins. An alarm should go off in your head. So they're not wrong in that alarm sounding. And we're told that upon hearing it, they have these two thoughts. Who is he that's speaking blasphemy? Thought number one. Thought number two in the form of a question. Who can forgive sins except God? Both are spot on. That would be a blasphemous thing to say. Blasphemy, it means to, to profane, to defile the name of God, the character of God, the, the works of God. Right, to carry the Lord's name in vain. 
in the Ten Commandments. It's not to, we say to use the Lord's name, but it means to carry it. The Nazis would have a belt buckle that said something to the effect of uh, for Christ or for the glory of God or something like that. They were carrying on their belt buckle the name of God if they did atrocities. That's what it means to blaspheme, to, to use his name in vain, is to misrepresent and profane and defile him in any way. So why are they saying Jesus just blasphemed? Because of their question. Only God can forgive sin. That's Mary's boy. Carpenter. He's not very educated. And he's saying he forgives sins. No mere man has the ability to forgive sin. To say that is to say that you share in the power and in the holiness of God. It's a claim to be God. Jesus is undeniably, by saying your sins are forgiven, you claiming to be God. So it's blasphemy. And if you were to go to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 16 and verse 23, the punishment for blasphemy is to be put to death. So these religious leaders, they're theologically spot on if Jesus is simply a man. That's where they got it wrong. What they got wrong wasn't that their theology, what they got wrong is they're not seeing Jesus for who he truly is because he's not a mere man. Yes, he was born in the flesh. Yes, he's fully human, but he's also fully God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the one who is the spotless lamb. He has no sin nature. The sin of Adam has not been passed down to him. So they are misapplying good theology here. They don't see that the Messiah stands right before them. Now we see Jesus forgiving sin. Here in the early chapters of Luke's account, we see him being accused of blasphemy. Luke has 24 chapters. You went all the way to Luke 23, one chapter before it all wraps up. In verse 34, what does Jesus say? Luke 23, 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. Early on, Jesus' ministry came here to forgive sins. We're going to put you to death for blasphemy. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he hangs on a tree being put to death for blasphemy and still saying, I'm here to forgive. The cross is being foreshadowed here. The shadow of the cross looms large in this house. Here's a, an apologetic application. People always say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Take him right here. Take him right here. It's clear as day. They're wrong. Jesus is claiming to be God. Everyone understood him to be claiming to be God. They want to charge him of blasphemy for that reason. That's what he's put to death for. So Jesus has claimed to forgive sins. The objection is he doesn't have the right to. This brings us to our third point. The authentication. Which is verses 20 through 26. Not in plan our children's message in conjunction with this passage, but it fits. Verse 22, but Jesus knowing their reasonings. These men are having these thoughts. They didn't speak this out loud, but because God knows all things, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He shows omniscience here. He knows that they are looking at him and reasoning in their hearts. He's a blasphemer. We've got a problem here, guys. And Jesus is not the kind of Lord, the kind of man who is confrontation adverse. He just addresses the elephant in the room. It says in verse 22, why are you reasoning in your hearts? What's, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you or say get up and walk? He just outright calls it for what it is. 
you imagine if you're one of the Pharisees or, or scribes there? Like, it just got awkward. It got uncomfortable. What's going to happen? Jesus poses a, you're thinking questions in your hearts. Let's just put the question out loud. What's easier? Now, what's the point of that question? Jesus wants to make clear, he wants to make the point that I do, in fact, have the power and the authority to forgive sins. We're going to use this as an object lesson. You see, any man could have gone up to somebody and said, I forgive you your sins. But no man can forgive the sins of another. The only person who can forgive you of your sins is God. This is why, as Protestants, we take issue with the idea that those involved in the papacy can forgive sins. It's very clear who can forgive sins but God alone. Anybody can say it, but how do you, how do you prove it? I forgive you of your sins. There's no way to verify that. It's just words. It's an empty claim. But if I have a paralyzed guy and I say, hey, I can feel the paralyzed man, well, we're going to find out real quick in a matter of moments whether or not I have the power to do that. It's going to be pretty obvious. So that's why Jesus is saying, what's easier? Just to say some words or to restore a man's body whole? Verse 24. But so that you may know. So that you'll be able to recognize. I want to leave you without excuse. I want you to have absolute certainty. I want to make sure that there isn't one objection left. I want you to know, he says, that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man. Very important phrase. It's a messianic title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. If we were to go to Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came before, near before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. Title of the Messiah. Jesus, this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself, and Luke's account alone the title Son of Man is used over 25 times. So if you're one of those people that highlights or circles things that it repeats, there you go. It's the first time it starts here, and this is the first time you used of it in Luke's Gospel. So that you may know that I, the Messiah, the promised one, have the authority, he says, on earth to forgive sins. He's still rooting it back, though. The easier things to say I forgive sins, the harder thing is to actually heal paralytic man, but I want you to know that I really can forgive sins by what I'm about to do. I say to you, he says, look to the paralytic, I say to you. He doesn't say, in the name of God, may God do, no, I say to you, he's saying I have authority. He's claiming here to be God himself. Notice, he doesn't pray for God to do it. He does it. And the man is fully healed. Just pick up your stuff and go. It says he was immediately healed in verse 25. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a healing that happens as a process. Instantaneous, the entire body paralyzed. He's up and walking. Can't attribute the healing to anything else.
everybody in that room at that moment knows this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the one that John has been preparing the way for. And he has the authority, the power to forgive sins. How do people respond? First, the paralytic, and I would assume his friends. And immediate, verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. The exact response you would expect. Those who are saved by God will sing the praises of God. His whole life has changed. Whenever he reflects back on his days of paralysis, praise is going to fill his heart and so in the, mind, the face of Jesus will be blazing in his mind. But I don't think he's glorifying God simply because he's not paralyzed anymore. I've seen the Messiah. My body's made whole. But more importantly, my spirit has been made right with God. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. I'm healed spiritually. I'm forgiven. You gotta imagine what the conversation was like with him and his friends. So glad you guys ripped a hole in the ceiling. Then there's everybody else. Verse 26. And astonishment seized them all. Astonishment grabbed hold of them. And the word astonishment, it's, it's this combination of joy, but like confusion. Like, I don't really know what to make of all this. It's too much. It's gripped them. But it says, and they began glorifying God. They're also giving God praise. I don't know what just happened, but I've never seen anything like this. It says they're filled with fear. Some translations say awe, which is why the word awesome actually in its traditional meaning deals more with reverency toward God. They're speechless. They're, they're, rev they're fearing before God. They don't know what to do. They've seen holy and mighty power come forth that can only be attributed to God. And they say as much, we have seen remarkable things today. Extraordinary things. Unbelievable things. I don't have categories for what I just witnessed. But that statement's so sad to me that it ends there. A house packed that you had to go through the ceiling. A house full of Pharisees, scribes. And the best you can say is, I've seen some pretty great stuff today. Why didn't any of them ask Jesus to forgive them? He made it clear that he could forgive sin. And yet nobody there asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins. John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. Church, isn't that terrifying? that you can see the work of God right before you and you still don't come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There might be some of you here this afternoon. I pray it isn't. They were filled with wonder and awe and they thought it was remarkable that a paralyzed man has been healed. And they don't realize that they're paralyzed in their sin and they need healing too. Jesus made clear, he made sure the Pharisees, the scribes, and everybody there knew his mission was to be a savior, to be the sin-forgiving savior. He made clear that the miracles and the signs are always serving to prove and authenticate the gospel mission. And they missed it. 
And for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the church, we need to remember that his mission is our mission. We can't forgive sinners. We can't save sinners, but we can proclaim and point them to the one that can. We must proclaim and point them to the one who can. We need to do out there. We should be the hands and feet of Christ. We should serve our communities. We should help the widows and the orphans. But all of the good we do societally means nothing if it's not done with the focus, intentionality, and intensity of proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can look upon them and say, friends, your sins are forgiven you. A pagan can open up a soup kitchen. Pagan can provide aid to the needy. What is the one thing the church can do that no other organization, no other people can do in the entire world? They can proclaim that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the lost. So let us throw ourselves heartily to helping out where we can, but never at the expense of not proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's use those as a means to say, this physical need that is met is serving to point you to your greater need, which is the forgiveness of your sins. We are to be proclaiming the good news that God, by his grace and for his glory, saves sinners through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that isn't marking the good you're doing in the community, then you're not doing it as a Christian. You're just doing it as a good citizen. Also, secondly, you see here that somebody can be in awe of, in awe of what God does and not in awe of who God is. You may be a fan, but you're not a follower. You want the fruit of his ministry without putting faith in him. So which are you? Are you a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to Christ and crying out, be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner? Father, forgive my sins through faith in your son? Or are you coming to God because you want him to fix some other lesser problem? You want him to meet some other lesser need. These men and the people there, they heard, they saw, but they did not ask, forgive me of my sins, Jesus. And it would be a shame that there was one here today who walked out that house the way those people did. Jesus came not chiefly to perform miracles and healings, but to forgive sin. And for the believer he is here today, for the true follower of Christ here today, that means Christ did not come to earth, live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, rise, forgive you of your sins so that you can go back to pursuing worldly things. You were not forgiven of your sins so you can go back and have a relationship with your sin. You have been forgiven of your sins so that you can be restored into a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live a life of holy fellowship with him. And if that sounds dreary, boring, or unexciting to you today, then perhaps you are walking out of here the way those walked out of the house, seeing some remarkable things but still dead in your sin. passage like this, I, I would be neglecting my calling as a pastor and a preacher to not say this to whoever's out there and who's not a follower. Your greatest need will always be to have your sins forgiven before a holy God. So I just want you to be honest with yourself in this moment. I want you to look within your very heart. You know, you know you're a sinner. 
I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you don't think you're that bad, let me put all your thoughts on a movie screen and invite 100 of your closest friends and family. Let's just go through your phone right now. Even those little hidden picture areas and files. You know that you are living a life in rebellion to your creator, to the one who rules over you, and to the one who will judge you according to his righteousness. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And yet this holy, righteous, just God is also a God of grace. And he's, I stand before you here today proclaiming what he offers, and that is the forgiveness of your sins. But it has to be on his terms. You have to confess what God has declared, that you are guilty before him in your sin. You must turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus. That's what it means to repent. It means to turn in the opposite way. Confession alone without repentance doesn't profit. You have to make a break from it. And you turn to Christ and you place your faith in him, recognizing Jesus Christ alone saves. That's why Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but through me. And if you trust in him, you place your faith in him, you will be forgiven in an instant. As quickly as this man went from a paralytic to a healthy body, even quicker you will go from sinner to saint. You'll be declared justified before God. And you'll be adopted into his family as a son or daughter. And you will receive the love of God. And you will be brought into a family of imperfect Christ followers. And you will begin to experience purpose and joy in your life that you didn't know. Not at the absence of hardship. So I beg you to not delay that. I beg you that at least for this moment, be honest with yourself. Do not suppress the truth in your unrighteousness. It's painful. It's hard. But we've done it all in here. We've made that break from that life. We would all do it again. So I beg you to turn to Christ this day. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the glorious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We say thank you. Thank you for pouring out your saving, sovereign mercy upon us and forgiving us of our sins. Thank you for piercing our hearts that we would see our sin for what it is. Thank you for giving us a hatred for our sin. Thank you for giving us faith that we could see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. And for giving us the courage to step forward, confess, repent, and to trust. Lord, may we all hold fast to you, Jesus. May we never make less of our sin. May we continue daily to recognize we have been forgiven eternally, but daily we get ourselves muddied up with sin. So daily we come before you asking to forgive us, not to be saved, but so that our, our relationship with you on a daily basis would not be strained. And I pray for anyone in here who's hearing my voice, who at this moment is not a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, it's going to sound harsh, but make them miserable in their sin. Be the hound of heaven who chases them, so that they would be awakened and turn to you. Father, save, 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 and strengthen us to proclaim that message. We pray this in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.